The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC is available online at www.overlandpark.cc. Welcome to Overland Park Community Church. It's good to have you here. If you uh, have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to 1 John, 1 John chapter 1. Um, you can follow along in version today as well. If you do a search for Overland Park uh, Community Church, you'll find us in there. Uh, I hope you guys got to see the game last night. I just can't contain myself. The Sooners just slammed those Buckeyes, and that was just delightful for me. As we and the, me and the kids sat there in the house, we had our gear on, and so if you are from Ohio State, I am not sorry. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, it's uh, what a fun time for college football to be uh, uh, back again. But uh, uh, today we're going to start this new series, and uh really came out of like, just really thinking about the concept of love and what the Lord asks us to do. And, and I love life. And I'm of the opinion that everyone should love life. And so you may have saw the series and you thought, man, all right, good. This, this series is going to be about love life. And you were expecting it to be about marriage and having a, having a great love life, right? Well, it is. Because in order to have a great love life, you better love life. If your wife doesn't love life, your love life is not going to be great. If you don't love life, your love life is not going to be great. And so I think every experience that we have, in order to be able to elevate it and for it to be all that the Lord wants it to be, we need to be people who love life. It's essential. And frankly, I encounter a lot of believers, like they say they know the Lord, they know Jesus, but they don't seem to love life, and that is confusing to me because Jesus has taught us that we are to have an abundant life. Um, he's taught us that when we know him, we are set free from our sin, and it ought to put us in a place where we are enjoying life at an extreme level. Now, in 1 John, not to be compu- confused with the Gospel of John, so some of you may just be starting to, to read the Word, and, and you're a little bit confused about John and the Gospel of John. Well, the Gospel of John is one of the first four in the New Testament. And John was an apostle, and he wrote this gospel. He was friends with Jesus. He was selected by Jesus to be an apostle, but he had a deep relationship with him. And so he wrote the gospel, and he says that he writes the gospel to help us to believe that Jesus was, in fact, um, the Messiah to come and to save us, that we would be able to believe that Jesus was the Savior of the world. Well, 1 John um, and 2 John and 3 John are found toward the end of the New Testament. Just before um, the book of Revelation, we find these three letters. And they're letters that are written to the church. And they're general letters, meaning that they're not written to specific churches. Like the Apostle Paul writes to the Galatian Christians. And so he writes to the church and um, that particular city, and, and, and we go through and we see the Philippians, and so many, they're directed towards specific churches. But when we come to John's letters to the church, they're written to the, just a general audience within the church. And so that even makes it even easier for us to apply them to our own lives today, um, uh, several thousand years later. And so we, we look, they're written in about 80, 85 to 90. So 20 years earlier, Jerusalem had been completely destroyed, and Jesus had prophesied that this was going to happen, 
after uh, his death, he said the days were coming that it would be destroyed, and it had been destroyed. And so Christians were scattered throughout the, the empire. They were just everywhere. They, they'd gone from the church being born out of Jerusalem uh, to then they started su- suffering severe persecution that brought about some scattering of them. But then when Jerusalem was destroyed, man, it just disrupted the Jews, and, and they, they just went everywhere, and a lot of the first century Christians were Jewish people. And and obviously there were a lot of Gentile Christians as well, but it just caused the, the church, if you will, just to be scattered everywhere. And so Christianity had been around for about a generation. So it had some history behind it. And, and time was passing. They were gaining some um, experience. And during this time, um, they had survived a severe amount of persecution. But the church was facing a decline in commitment. Like the, the people's, like the second generation Christians, they were, there was some, like they were starting to decline a little bit. And interestingly, throughout the um, study of the New Testament, we'll see that, that people struggle with this. The church struggles with this. And Paul writes about it. And, and Peter writes about it. And so they're constantly telling us how we are to refocus. And so during this time of this waning commitment, Christians were beginning to conform to worldly standards. And so they were sort of experiencing a watering down of of the gospel, if you will. They were failing to take a stand for Christ, and they were compromising in their faith on multiple levels. And in the midst of this, these false teachers were everywhere. And so the the teaching man was just like, people were teaching crazy stuff. They just didn't jive with what was uh, taught by Christ and what the apostles were teaching in the church. And, and all, out of all of that, like, it, it was so crazy that if you study and read all of uh, the, the first epistle to John, which is what we're going to do over the next few weeks, we're going to break it down, is that, that John even calls them antichrists. Like the, they're, they're antichrists running around. They are totally against what Jesus taught. And so uh, w- when we look and see what, who these false teachers were, there was this um, Gnosticism is what was being taught. It was extremely popular. Now, for a Gnosticist, they thought all matter was evil. And so they believed that anything in physical matter was, was evil in and of itself. So therefore, the Son of God, Jesus, could not be, he could not have a physical body because matter is evil. So they were teaching a form of the gospel. We have the first century Christians, this close to the time of Christ, um, uh, the first generations, or second generation, if you will, this is creeping up. And so we have a form of the gospel that is being polluted by truth. Now, why is that the case? Because the enemy, the devil himself, is always trying to bring about lies and insert lies to get people off track. And so in this um, Gnosticism, there were basically two forms that were being taught. And, and one form was Docetic Gnosticism. And it taught that Christ was a phantom. Like, like he wasn't really, he didn't really have a physical body. People saw him and interacted with him, but he was more of a spirit. And as he lived here on the earth, he wasn't a, a human being like you and I are human beings. And so they were teaching this. Now, the other for, um, form was Corinthian, uh, And it, it taught that uh, the spirit of God descended down upon Jesus when he was baptized. You remember in the Gospel of John, John says that John the Baptist baptized Jesus and the Spirit came down and descended upon Jesus like a dove. And so they saw that and they, they, they remember that part of the story, but that he departed on the cross 
the Spirit of God departed from the man Jesus Christ on the cross before he died. Because he couldn't, God couldn't be, he, he couldn't be God and suffer. This is what they were teaching in this heresy. And so um, they believed in, in that the, the higher amount of knowledge that you obtained, then the, the greater level of spiritual connection you had. So in order to really arrive in your faith with the, the heretical gospel that they were teaching that included Jesus, that you had to arrive at a certain place of knowledge, and when you were arrived there mentally and your ability to think about this, like you didn't have to worry about sin, okay? Now, here's the dangerous part of what they, this, this heresy. It wasn't happening outside of the church. It was happening inside of the church. And so there were people who were claiming to know Jesus, and claiming to follow Jesus, that were polluting the gospel as early as the second generation Christians in 80, 85 to 90. So right around that day and time, there was all of this heresy going on from people who were rising up in the church who were changing things and saying, no, this is the way it ought to be, which should serve as a really strong warning for us 2,000 years later. All that you see being taught in churches all around America is not biblically accurate. It never has been. It never will be. Because the enemy is always at work. And so when we look at this and, and we see what John is dealing with, it's, it's very important for us to go, okay, what does the Bible say? Because as soon as we move away from the Bible, it is, it is extremely easy for us to move into heresy. And so people will twist it around and make it say things that it doesn't say, and they, enlight, they interpret Scripture uh, based upon their, um, what they feel about something or how they view something, or culture has changed and adapted, so we must change. Uh-uh. No. As soon as you do that, you're moving into the realm of heresy. That's why it's important for you to always find you a body of believers that you can get around to where you know that the, the most important thing to them is one who Jesus is, that he is God in the flesh, um, that he, he is fully man and he's fully God, and he came to die for our sins. And second, what does that church believe about the Bible? You want to find a church, if you want to stay away from heresy, that has a very high view of the Bible. And so, uh, so when, when we're looking at what John is dealing with here, it's, it's against this backdrop that he writes the epistle to uh, the, the, the early church, and he's trying to help them as they've come at a place where it's a, a watered-down worldly version of the gospel. John writes this letter to get them back on track. And so, so we, we look at this, and I, I'm going to read the first chapter. And as I read the chapter, what I want you to do is try to use your imagination and try to picture a time when Christ followers, people who claimed to know Jesus, were very uncommitted, where they were not living in freedom, and it just didn't seem like they were very much different than the rest of the world. Now, that's not very hard to do, is it? Sounds like today. Like you look around, you see a whole lot of watered-down version of the gospel. A lot of times you don't see any more freedom in a person who claims to know Jesus than you do in a person who doesn't know Jesus. And there's a problem with that. 
And John recognized that there was a problem with that. He recognized the heresy was creeping into the church. And so he writes this letter. And in this letter, if you do any studying of the, the, the epistles of John, you will see that they're all about love. As a matter of fact, um, tradition has it in the early church that John, at the end of his life, was talking and teaching so much about love that the church got sick of it. Like, all you ever teach about John is love. Why do you always teach about love, John? Why don't you teach about something else? And the apostles responded to the church. Brothers and sisters, when you get this one down, I will teach about something else. Okay, so the, the book is about love. But what John is going to teach us from going from chapter 1 and ending up in chapter 5, when we get into chapter 3 and he start talking about, hey, man, how can you claim to know God if you don't have love for your brother? He's going to teach us how to love life. And so chapter 1 is essential as he's battling this heresy and he's seeing that there's a lukewarm faith that is happening in the church. He's trying to get the followers of Jesus back on track who have gone astray. He starts with um, chapter 1 and he begins to do battle and, and, and refute this Gnosticism. And in doing so, he's going to teach us how we can love life. And when we, have, when we love life, we're going to have a great Love life. Like, like love life, you're going to have a great career. You're going to have a great um, family. Like everything around you is going to start like getting on track in such a way that you're able to enjoy it and experience the life that the Lord ex expects for you to experience. And so the, the key is, how do I love the life that I'm living? And so in, in, with that backdrop, this cold or this lukewarm Christianity, this Gnosticism. Let's go to the Apostle John and see what he has for us today. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin. We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Oh, man, there's so much truth in that. Like that chapter is like, man, we could probably just spend a month just breaking that chapter down and teaching so many different things. But contextually, as we look at it from the standpoint of John refuting this heresy, people in their minds thinking that it doesn't really matter what I do because sins in the flesh don't exist. 
As long as I've attained mentally to this place, it doesn't matter how I live. John writes this letter and he teaches us, listen, man, you want to love life. This is how you can love life. And the first thing that he teaches us that is essential is to love life, you must experience Jesus. You've got to start here. So in verses 1 through 4, as John is combating the Gnosticism, and they say, look, that Jesus was a spiritual form, John says, no, 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 wait a minute. I heard him. I saw him. I touched him. I ate with him. I listened to him. I sat at the table with him. I knew him, and he was a dude that was fully God. Like he was fully man and he was fully God. He was not some spiritual being. God was in him. He was God in the flesh. So when we start looking at, again, like sometimes it's hard for us as believers to go, man, like it just feels uncomfortable for me as a follower of Jesus. Sometimes it's easy for, for, for believers to get to this place that, that, that it's, it feels uncomfortable for me to say that this particular belief system is wrong. Like, the only right belief system that exists on the planet, if you are a follower of Jesus, is Jesus. Like, there's not another one. And it's not because, oh, the Christians are so narrow-minded. It is because Jesus was narrow-minded. Jesus said he was God. Jesus believed he was God. Jesus came in the form of man, and he was fully man and fully God, and he never sinned, and he died for our sins on the cross of Calvary to fix all the broken mess that we are. And so there's no, other, there's no other remedy for the sin that exists and separates us from humanity. And so John is saying, man, I, I knew him personally. Like, I, I saw him. I touched him. I, I, I was in relationship with him. Now, it's easy for us to look at this and go, man, man John had an advantage. I would be able to um, live my life in such a more powerful way if I could have only known Jesus the way that John did. Well, here we're missing something very important. John, you see, when we look at him, it wasn't John's physical nearness to Christ that made him love life. It was his spiritual nearness. Like he knew as he began to follow this guy that his heart burned inside of him as he opened up the words of life to him and the Holy Spirit started doing a special work in the life of John. As a matter of fact, John's um, ability to serve the Lord didn't even go, like it didn't even become an exponential factor in his life until after Jesus was gone. Because when Jesus departed, the day of Pentecost took place, and we read about it in the book of Acts, where the Spirit of God descended down, and God, God the Father, we have the Trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and after Jesus ascends, the second person of Trinity goes back to heaven, he sends back God the Holy Spirit, and on the day of Pentecost, the believers were empowered as they were indwelt with the Spirit of God. And so it was the spiritual nearness that John had with Jesus that enabled him to do all that it was that he did, even writing this letter and being used of the Lord to lead in the early church. And so John is saying that it is all about our experience with Jesus. Now, this is very important. Like, you can go, okay, well, granted, like, come on, let's get to the deep stuff. This is the deep stuff, bro. Like, I will counsel with someone, and they will come in with me, and maybe they're having marital problems. And one of the first things I'll say is, tell me, what you believe about Jesus. Well, I grew up in church. I was baptized when I was such a woman. Tell me what you know about Jesus, bro. Like, are you, do you, have you had an encounter with him? 
Has there ever been a time where you have experienced him? Your life has run headlong into the truth and you have discovered that you are a sinner in deep need of God's grace and you met Jesus for your own self. You experienced him. And why is that important for me to ask that question? Because my whole belief system is based upon that and I have nothing for you if you don't believe that. Like, like my whole power, my whole ability to like follow the Lord, my ability to keep my own marriage together is based solely upon my experience with Jesus. And if I'm trying to help a person, like I have to stop, start there because if they, like, if they don't, if they've not had that experience, all I can offer them is human wisdom. And I already know from the word of God that human wisdom is earthly and of the devil. Like, like, it, like maybe it will help somewhat. Maybe it will help principally to offer some principles that psychologically will help you to work through having a better relationship. Sure, that is true. But down at the fundamental core of the problem is, is if, you're, if your marriage is broken and you haven't experienced Jesus, then let's not try to work on the marriage first. Let's try to work on you, bro, because you're broken. And as long as you're broken, the marriage is broken. And as long as your wife is broken, the marriage is broken. Like, <laughs> I'd be the first to say, I don't think Abby and I could have done 20 years of marriage approaching 21 without the Lord being the center of our lives. Like, it's just difficult. You run up against these things that are challenging here and there. And so, like, it's, it, what makes our marriage so wonderful is not me. <laughs> right? Right? And it's not her. What makes our marriage so wonderful is the Lord. Like we, we both have had this experience with the Lord. And so we're able to go through life in such a way that we can cr be corrected by the Holy Spirit. And we mutually have this connection with either, each other that is surrounded around Jesus. Okay? So when, when we trust Christ, that's a very important thing. Not when, not when we go to a particular church. When we trust Christ, we experience him. So it's not a religious thing that, that, that people want to make it out to be. It is a spiritual like relationship that we have with, with Christ. Six times in this short letter that is only five chapters long and, and like three pages in my Bible. Like six times, John uses this um, phrase, born of God, born of God. And so he's trying to combat this false heresy that is existing in the church, and he's trying to correct it. And he says, listen, we got to start here that a person needs to be born of God. He learned this language from Jesus himself. In John chapter 3, Jesus has an encounter with a guy named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes to him and says, man, I know you're different. Like, I know you're not like every other teacher. And Jesus, in interacting with him and, and the guy asking Jesus about what's different about him, and he says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What's Jesus talking about? He said, unless you experience me in such a way that you come to life spiritually, you cannot know God. That's what it means to be born again. Like, there, there's this talk in this language in the Bible of, of being born of the flesh and being born of the spirit, of being born of the water, of being born of the blood. There's, there's all this contrasting. And, 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 and the apostle Paul teaches us that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. Like, like we come into the world as sinners. We don't come into the world as good people. Like we don't, 
Our kids don't learn to sin from us. Now, they, not, they may become professional sinners by learning from us, but they just know how to sin, man. It's just part of, of who they are. And so, so, so people come into the world as sinners. And as, they come, as we come into the world as sinners, the Bible teaches that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. And so the, the Spirit of God draws us unto himself and as we take our will and surrender it to the Lord and trust and believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, so we must believe the gospel and trust in it. So we believe it and we trust it. And when we, when we, when we, when we do those two things, then that's what it means to be born of God. So there are, are, are a few components of being born of God. One is the Lord must initiate it. Jesus taught in the Gospel of John that you cannot come to the Father unless the Father draws you unto himself. It is impossible to experience Jesus in the way that I'm talking about and be born of God unless the Lord doesn't initiate a drawing and a wooing and the Holy Spirit is calling you unto himself. When he does, this is why the Bible says that the unpardonable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit begins to draw you, you reject the Holy spirit and you say I ain't got time for that like like you you make up your mind I don't have time for that or I'll do that later then you're blaspheming against the spirit of God who is calling you into a life of obedience where you believe the gospel that Jesus was God in the flesh that he lived a perfect life that he died on the cross of Calvary to set men free from their sins that you believe that and then you mentally take your will and you trust that you step out on it like you look at a bridge, uh, you look at a log, you're going to cross a creek, you're going to walk across it. There has to come a time where you go, I believe that log can get me to the other side. But there also has to come a time that your belief moves into a place of action where you trust that the log will hold you up and you step out on it and now you are on the log. And the same is true for the faith. That, that, that the Lord presents the cross and Jesus on the cross. He presents himself to us. We have to believe that that is the way of salvation that can make me right with God. We have to initiate by taking a step and trusting my life on that very truth. That is the central heart of the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins. So we believe and we trust, and John starts here. Like he starts here because he wants people to be born of God because only then is it possible to love life in the way that I'm talking, okay? So he says, look, you have to start with your experience of God. And John says, I have interacted with him. So real life, the life that we're talking about is revealed in Christ. So there it is, boom. Boom but it is experienced when we trust him. So all throughout this series, I'm gonna teach you a whole bunch of stuff. If you've never taken the step of trusting the Lord with your life, like your parents can't trust the Lord with your life because it's not their life. It's your life. Nobody can trust the Lord with your life but you. And so every human being has to come to a place where they stand face to face with Jesus and answer the question, have I trusted my life with Jesus? Like, do, do, have I looked and said, you know what? It doesn't matter what Jesus asks me to do, my life is his. This is why you often hear me say that a person gave their life to Christ. It's because we, the Lord, in his sovereignty, has created this thing called free will, and he allows us to choose to give our lives to him. And when we do that, man, 
that is the first step toward loving life as we encounter Jesus and he, we realize the depth of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness that he offers us as his followers. So to love life, you must experience Jesus. Here's the second thing. To love life, according to John, you must share Jesus. Look at verses five through seven. So he goes on from having said, I've encountered him. He now says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. So he, he's beginning to say, it does matter how you live. Like when you, when you experience Jesus, you're not going to love darkness anymore. And this heresy that he was combating was, is that there, there was a form of the gospel being taught that if you ascend to this place where you understand really what's going on here, is that it, that it doesn't really matter what you do because all matter is evil and that stuff doesn't count. The only thing that counts is what you do spiritually. And John says, uh-uh, no, 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 no. It matters how we live our lives. And, and, and so he says um, that if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So he's saying, look, man, you can come to that place where you are looked at by God, where you are purified and no sin remains. But when you come to that place that you're purified with God, you're going to have fellowship with God. And in that fellowship with God, you are not going to love sin anymore like you used to. And you're going to do everything within your emotional and, and physical constitution and your spiritual being that is now being formed in you as Christ now lives in you to avoid Sin and darkness. You're going to flee from it. You're going to walk away from it. Now you're going to be in this place that, to where God is going to look at you and see you as a sinless creature. But you, you should take on the persona that now you're light, walking in the light and you don't love sin anymore. Like there's a time in a person's life that when you sin, it doesn't bother you if you're dead spiritually. Like sin doesn't bother you. Why should it? Like it doesn't even exist on your radar because you are dead spiritually, supernaturally. You haven't been quickened by the Holy Spirit and Jesus, the, the God of the universe doesn't live in you and so sin doesn't bother you at all. But once you experience Jesus, man, all of a sudden like you feel all this incredible joy but sometimes you feel like, man, I don't know if I should be doing that. Hey, that's not any way that a, a, a man who loves Jesus should talk to his wife. Hey, that's not a way that a father who loves Jesus ought to be treating his kids. And it starts to like line you up. Because why? Because now you have experienced Jesus. And because you've experienced Jesus, you want to share Jesus. And he uses this, this whole um, idea of, of, of declaring him. He says, we have heard from him and we declare to you. We heard it from him, we declare it to you. So declare it and share it. Like, like we gotta be able to be the people of God who have experienced Christ at such a level that we're, we're not uncomfortable sharing the Lord. Now, let me tell you what witnessing is not. A lot of people think that witnessing is debating this stuff. Well, I'm gonna convince you why Christianity is better than um, the Muslim belief. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna debate with you and, and, and show you why the Bible is true. That's not what witnessing is. That's what apologetics is. And apologetics and witnessing are two different things. Witnessing for the Lord is not debating religion. It's sharing spiritual experiences with others by the life we live and the words we speak. 
So witnessing is about living my life and sharing the spiritual experiences that I'm having with the Father because I've experienced Jesus and I'm sharing that with other people and I'm living my life in such a way that people can see that it is true. Here's the, here's the kicker to that. You cannot share spiritual experiences if you do not have them. And that's why our witnessing is so anemic and weak in the American church today. Is that we have, I think that the American church has even settled for somewhat of a worldly Christianity where we're just okay. And we go, man, I know I love Jesus and I, I'm going to heaven and that's all good. But it doesn't really matter how I live my life. I'm just kind of going through the motions and I don't have any spiritual experiences to talk about. Because I'm so wrapped up in everything else that the people of the world are wrapped up in. And I'm not wrapped up in Jesus. You know, because when you get wrapped up in Jesus, man, you're going to start being blown away by the things that he's doing in and around and through you, and you can't help talk about it. You, you, you know, some people worry about teaching their kids all about Jesus. I don't, I hardly ever teach my kids a lesson about Jesus. But I'm going to tell you what, you can ask my kids what, I, what they know about Jesus, and you can grill them about Jesus, because they're living in a home where people are in love with Jesus, and there are spiritual experiences happening all the time. And so they're just watching it, man. They're watching truth unfold. That's what the church needs. It needs people who are full of the life of God and they love life and they're just living a witness, a testimony for the Lord. And it's not a difficult thing to do. As a matter of fact, it would be hard not to teach my children about Jesus because Jesus has so much of Jimmy. And that's why Jesus said, if you want to find your life, you better be willing to lose it. And so John is saying, man, we, we got to share Jesus. And, and we share him by the experiences that we have. And so he speaks of this idea of fellowship. And the word is koinonia. And it's not the same thing that we mean when we say, hey, man, let's hang out for some fellowship. Now, hopefully we mean that as believers. But, but it's easy for a person who doesn't know the Lord to kind of think, well, we're having some fellowship as well. And certainly they are. And it is a, an earthly form of fellowship. But fellowship is not just mere um, social engagement. It's social and spiritual interaction. And so whenever we talk about fellowship, and by the way, let me just give a plug here. We're having a picnic on September 23rd, and we're going to fellowship. Okay? Now, you need to register for that. And here's why. Because if you don't, you're probably not going to get a t-shirt, okay? And so we're going to fellowship out and have a picnic. There's going to be a couple of people that are going to get baptized. Maybe you're a candidate for baptism. You want to get baptized. There's a couple of people that, that have recently given their life to the Lord, one of them earlier on, and, 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 and they just said, you know what? Like, I told them about this, this picnic and said, hey, there's a pond there. We can do your baptism right there. And like, yeah, we're into that right there. And so maybe, maybe you want to get baptized. There's a spiritual and a social interaction that's going to take place at a park south of town. As OPCC, the body of Christ, just comes together to hang out. And so there's, a, there's spiritual components, but not necessarily just because we're having baptism. It doesn't mean that we have to have baptism or some kind of spiritual exercise like prayer in order to have biblical fellowship. Here is the kicker. We are partners. The word fellowship means communion or partaker or partner. So we are partners in eternal life, and we love to share it with each other. Like it's amazing to me that I can meet a believer, and when I find out that they have experienced Jesus as I have, and it becomes apparent, and we start talking, we have this immediate connection as if we have known each other for 2,000 years. Why? Because Jesus is in us. 
And so there's this connection that we can share socially and we can share spiritually the experiences that are going on with us. And we are connected because we are partners in the eternal life that Jesus has purchased on the cross of Calvary. So so John is telling us that to love life, you must experience Jesus. To love life, you must share it. And true fellowship combines social and spiritual um, interaction and is made possible only when you've experienced Jesus. Like you can hang out with anybody. But to have biblical fellowship, you must have experienced Jesus. And once you experience real life, you love it and you want to share it. As a matter of fact, you can't help but share it because it is what? As Jesus said, I will make in you a wellspring of life springing up. And it just comes out. Because is that the life you're living? If you're not, then it's impossible for you to love life, even if you believe everything that I'm teaching because you know the truth and you're not letting it set you free. Because you're walking outside of what the truth is taught. So we love life. We must experience it. We must share it. And here's the the last thing. And and this has been really cool for me to learn this. To love life, you must confess sin. Now, the fascinating thing about this is verses 8 and 10. He says, if, like, so these people are saying they they didn't have sin. And there's some people who teach that today. You can come to a place where you never sin anymore. Well, tell me then what the word means when it says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Like, like there it is. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Okay, now, here's the fascinating thing. In verse 7, he says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from what? All sin. In God's sight, when I experience Jesus, I am purified from all sin, past, present, and future. I come purified. As a child of God, I am a child of God. But yet he turns around and says in verse 8, if we claim that we have not, we, we, we are without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What is John talking about there? Why is he saying right here previously that we are purified from all sin, but now we need to confess our sin? And if we say that we don't sin anymore and that sin is not in us, we're not being realistic. Here's what's going on, I believe. This confession... Again, remember, this letter is written to the church. It's written to believers. This confession of the believer is about freedom, not forgiveness. Like, when we confess that Jesus is Lord and he is the sacrifice for our sins, we are covered. Like, we are set free. We are no longer in bondage to sin. But when we sin, verse 7, John, as he says in verse 7, he purifies us. That doesn't mean that, that because we're pure, we willingly walk in sin. As a matter of fact, it means that we struggle against it and we walk in freedom to love life. Now, how do we walk in freedom? When this confession that I think that he is referring to in verse 9 is that we are agreeing with God. Like in confession, we are agreeing with God that sin is sin. If we confess our sin, if we look at sin and we just say, you know what, that's sin. 
Instead of going, well, you know what, our culture has changed, and I don't want to call that sin, and blah, 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 and we water it down. We just agree with God and say, this is sin. We look at our own lives, and when we recognize sin in our lives, we just go, you know what, I'm not going to try to just, uh, justify this. I'm just going to recognize it and say, call sin what it is, and Lord, I have sin in my life. Like, I have sin. And so I'm recognizing the sin in my life. And it can be anything from uh, something that we, we would classify as socially unacceptable to something like you lose your temper with your wife in the morning because you haven't had your coffee yet. Amen? Like, that one gets me, bro. Like, I think a week ago, is it a week ago, two weeks ago, I'm texting Abby and I'm saying, listen, I'm sorry. I'm frustrated. I'm a little tired. And I know my attitude was off this morning. Like, I was just a little hateful. Now, we weren't throwing dishes or anything, you know. I was just, just, just not being, like, I wasn't being loving. And so what's going on there? Well, I get down and I read the word and I'm sitting with the Lord and the Lord is starting to point that out. And I'm saying to the Lord, I agree with you. You know what the devil will try to get you to do? Is say, oh, that's not that big a deal. Everybody talks to their wife that way. It'll be fine. And a root of bitterness begins to take, a seed of bitterness begins to take root in your life. And it begins to drive a wedge between you and your spouse. And so in confession of what John is talking about is that after we have experienced Jesus and our sins have been forgiven, we recognize sin in our lives and we confess it for the sake of being able to walk in freedom instead of still living like a slave when we have been delivered to the promised land. And so we are agreeing um, with God that sin is sin. We are ensuring that we don't conceal our sin from God himself. Like in confession, I am ensuring that I'm not going to conceal my, my sin from God as if that were possible, but more importantly, I'm not going to conceal my sin from myself. So in confession, I'm going to talk to God about it, about the sin that I am guilty of. And then finally, we are recognizing our tendency to sin and relying on the Lord's power to overcome it so that we can walk what? In light and in fellowship with God as he begins to move in our lives. And guess what that equals? Freedom. Hang on. I'm free, man. I have no guilt. I have no remorse. My sin is confessed before the Lord, not just to receive forgiveness, but just like I'm just walking with him, and he knows I'm screwed up. That's why he came. Like, like Jesus knows Jimmy has some really jacked up stuff in his life, and that I'm going to consistently try to work on and struggle against my flesh and look more and more like Christ, but I'm not going to fall in love with the darkness. I'm going to fall in love with the light, and I'm going to share it with others, and I'm going to let the Lord take me down this journey, and he is going to make me into all that he wants me to be. And so what is the big idea? Satisfied. <laughs> Verse 4. We write this to make our joy complete. Not everyone understands this joy. It is a spiritual fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is a component of God living in us. And it means deep satisfaction. It means... that I'm so satisfied with life that hell can throw everything it has at me. But I love life so much because I've experienced Jesus and I share him and I'm walking in confession, living openly and authentically with him and, and allowing him to shape me. 
that hell can throw everything it has at me. But it cannot touch my joy. It is why the person who is a follower of Jesus can hold a sick baby in their arms. And watch it pass from this day, from this life to the next. And somehow have joy. It is why the person who knows the Lord and has shared in his experiences can come to the place where they are diagnosed with cancer and they have six months to live. And they start taking the chemo and it runs its course and they get to the end and I have experienced it multiple times in ministry. They have the joy of the Lord. Why? Satisfied. This is what it means to love life. And the only way to share the gospel, the way that Jesus wants you to share it, is to be satisfied yourself. Because nobody else is buying what you're selling if it's not working in your life. Are you satisfied? Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at www.overlandpark.cc.